0: Greetings and welcome to episode 11 of Beyond Xia. I'm your host Justin Jacobs. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most important events in all of East Asian history. I know I preface almost every single podcast with "this is one of the most important topics that we're going to talk about," uh, but in this case, it really, really is. If you don't know much about the Great Southern Migration, then you know very, very little about the history of the East Asian mainland. It's extremely important with lots of implications for other aspects of history. Um, the Great Southern Migration. Now, let's sort of set our time frame here. For the last several episodes, we've been in the BC era, the first millennium BC, more or less, okay? Uh, the Shang Dynasty, of course, and the Oracle Bones and all of that, that's a little bit before um, the first millennium BC. But the Zhou Dynasty, Confucius, all the sure philosophers, the Warring States Period, the First Empire, um, that was all in the first millennium BC, All right, finally now we're going to move into our own era, uh, A.D., um, and uh, I like to start off with the Battle of Red Cliff, 208 A.D., and the geopolitical backdrop here, the setting is is that the Han Dynasty, in this case the Eastern Han Dynasty, remember the Han Empire, the long-lived, more stable successor to the short-lived Qin Empire, um, lasts for about 400 years or so. All right, the Western Han Empire from about 200 BC to zero and then the Eastern Han Empire often seen as a somewhat weaker successor um, after this brief 20-year interregnum and civil war and whatnot and usurpation of the throne. Uh, the Eastern Han Empire lasts from about you know zero to 200. I think technically it's 220 AD um, but you know towards the last decades of any empire, any dynasty, um, power has effectively already left the central government and the throne. And that's certainly the case with the Eastern Han Dynasty. Now, in 208 AD, what you have is you already have several contenders who are attempting either variously to restore the Han Dynasty, to create a new dynasty, and they're all duking it it out among each other. Okay? What's different now, though, from the Warring States period, is that substantial components of the armies and resources that are brought to bear on the battles that attend the decline of the Eastern Han Empire are going to be located in the south. Now, what do I mean when I say the south? Well, we're going to think of this in riverine terms. All right, the Yellow River in the north. That's what we used to always talk about. The Yellow River Valley this, the Yellow River Valley that. All right, that's the cradle of civilization, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, Now, we're, we're going to be talking a lot more about the Yangtze River. Okay, the Yangtze River... Um, is the one that today, is sort of ends in the Shanghai era, a- area. Okay. Um, now, the Battle of Red Cliff is so interesting, because you have three contenders for the, for, for the throne, trying to either restore or overthrow the Han Dynasty. In the north, you have the person who is seen to control the most militarily powerful state, Cao Cao, Okay, Tao Tao is trying to put down the the you know challengers who are located in the south Yangtze River drainage basin areas. Okay. And in two oh eight he meets them for battle on the Yangtze River. Okay? And he is roundly defeated. Because Tao Tao is a master of land warfare. But he does not have much experience, no northerner has much experience fighting on water. Because in the south of the East Asian mainland, water is everywhere. Water falls from the sky all the time, there's rivers all over the place, there's enormous lakes. Water, 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 water in the south. If you're going to keep your capital in the north, and you want to incorporate the, the Yangtze River Valley, the drainage basin... And all the land south of the Yangtze River, you need to master naval warfare. You need to have a, have a, have a navy. And Cao Tao is easily tricked in battle, uh, according to the fables and the stories that get collected in what's known as the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Um, and he's humiliated in, a, in, a, in the first major naval battle of East Asian history. That's the, that, that's the other thing that's important about the Battle of Red Cliff. It's your first real naval battle. Now, how can we have a naval battle? Why is this the first naval battle? Because you haven't had Huaxia states, okay? Those literate elites who are using some form of the Chinese script, reading the Confucian, so the the shir philosophers, the Zhou classics, building walled sedentary cities with intensive agriculture—that's the Huaxia culture sphere, okay? They've all been in the north so, so far. Eh, one or two have been sort of, you know, in the Yangtze area, uh, but they were seen as peripheral players. The main stage was the Yellow River and the states that were all around there and in the north. Okay, that is finally going to change in a big way. Okay, and when you get this massive southern migration that begins to occur with the downfall of the Han Dynasty, 100, 200, 300, 400 A.D., Okay, you're going to have constant warfare upon the downfall of the Han Dynasty, overpopulation from the north. These people are going to migrate en masse down to the south, and they're going to encounter unfamiliar peoples, unfamiliar ecosystems. Okay. Beginning in the Western Han, statistics are always so hard to have any real sense of when you're talking about 2,000 years ago, but the Western Han, 200 BC to, you know, zero or so. It is estimated that less than one fourth of the population that we would identify as in the Huaxia culture sphere lived in the Yangtze River basin, in the south essentially. Okay, that area was seen as a distinct and alien regional culture, in which there was limited imperial influence from the governments in the north. Okay, one of the one of the warring states that actually was quite well known was the state of Chu, and that was the most southern state that had some pretension of being included in the Hua Xia culture sphere, but the state of Chu was always seen as odd, as different, Uh, you know, right on the fringes of civilized cultures because it was so far in the south. All right, by the 4th century AD, you know, it's 100 years or so after the fall of the Han dynasty, you start to get full-scale colonization of the south, the clearing of hillsides, draining marshes for agriculture, and the displacement or integration of the people who are already there, the indigenous peoples, many of whom are speaking Austro-Asiatic languages and being pushed further and further south, or integrating, of course. And again, when we say integrating, they don't become Chinese, all right, they aren't just assimilated without a trace, they merge, they, they, they interbreed genetically, culturally, socially, into the huaxia culture sphere, and by doing so, they change what it means to be huaxia. Huaxia, or if you want to think of it as Chinese, is not an eternal, homogenous entity that never changes. It changes so much, in fact, that every couple hundred of years, it would even make sense to come up with a new word and say, this isn't Chinese anymore, just like we do. We say Romans, and then we say Italians, because, you know, there are no ancient Italians. Right? You need to always remind yourself to do that with terms like Chinese. This is why I keep insisting on huaxia. Okay. Um, now, one fourth of the Huaxia culture sphere might live in the Yangtze Basin in the Western Han. By 589 AD, this is the beginning of the Sui Dynasty, 40% of the population is living in the south. And get ready for this statistic. By 1200 AD, another 600 years, 85%! That is a whopping number! 85%! of the population of the Huaxia culture sphere will be considered to living in the south, in and around the Yangtze River drainage basin and lands further south than that. What this means is that the southern part of the East Asian mainland will become the economic, cultural, and demographic center of East Asia. And it will remain that way up until the present day. Okay? It will be known in Chinese as Jiangnan, literally south of the river. And every state has to deal with the fact that all the wealth, all the cultural talent, all the education, all the tax revenue, is in the south. Okay, Now, there's one thing in that list that I did not include that uh, is conspicuous by its absence. Military and political power will not be located in the south still. You're scratching your head. How can that be? Well, we're going to get into that. Our next episode is Empires of the Steppe, and we're going to understand that. Uh, But for now, I just want us to understand the unique transformation that occurs when the majority of the population, of the Huaxia population, shifts to the south. And it's a huge shift that still continues to this day. That is where the vast majority of the Chinese population lives today. All right, they're southerners. Now, what sort of changes occur with this southern migration? Let's let's begin with agriculture. Everything's going to stem from agriculture and the resources that it produces. In the north, what you've had traditionally are small-scale family farms. Emphasis on the word small, small small-scale. These farms produce what we think of as the hard grains. Wheat, millet, sorghum, soybeans. Okay? The influence of landlords are relatively small. Of course, you have to say relative, that means you're comparing it to something, and you can't compare it to something that doesn't exist yet in the South. So, you know, there were landlords before. People's lives at the bottom of the social pyramid truly sucked and were exploited. Okay? Uh, But compared to what we're going to see later in the South, Northern landlords were weaker. They had less dictatorial, exploitative control over their peasant tenants. okay, And the farms were of a smaller scale. There's only so much you can do in the soils of the north. Oh sure, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, they were the most fertile place in all of East Asia. But just like the Middle East, it can't go on forever. You farm them to death, it's going to turn into desert, and the land is going to be very tough to maintain the levels of productivity that it once had. And that's going to occur in northern China as well. Okay, so by the time you get to the first millennium AD, farming is smaller scale in the north. Okay, and there's only certain types of things that you can produce. Wheat, millet, sorghum, soybeans. You have the constant threat of drought in the north. Drought and famine. Okay. The water situation in the north is really messed up. You have this huge yellow river with an unimaginable amount of water, but the yellow river is grumpy. It doesn't want to cooperate. Okay, you don't get these heavy rains till late August. Too late for agriculture. And yet when you really need the water, the Yellow River is running low because it hasn't been filled up with the late August rains yet. So what are you going to do in the summer? You need irrigation for your farms. That's why in the north you see a lot of family-owned, small-scale wells. Stone-lined wells. This is the lifeline for farms in the north. You have to have a reliable source of water for irrigation. And you get it through wells because the Yellow River is unreliable. Okay, It's not high when you need the water for agriculture, and then when you don't need it, you get these heavy rains and it overflows its dikes. As far as scholars can tell, historians can tell, there seem to be in about you know a 2,000 year, maybe 2,500 year time frame, we count 1,593 times that the Yellow River has broken its dikes and overflowed. And every time it does that, It destroys farmland, it kills peasants, it submerges villages. This is why the Yellow River is often referred to today as China's Sorrow. Uh, it, it, It helps create the birth of a wealthy civilization, but it also destroys it over and over again. And so the task of the states in the north is to build and maintain dikes, to manage the Yellow River so that it doesn't keep destroying your hard won agricultural land. Now, in the south, after you get the Great Migration, it's gonna be quite different. Okay? What you're gonna end up with is you're gonna see that there's plenty of water year-round. Water's never a problem in the South. You can always get water. The problem is managing that water. Okay, what can you build in, what 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 can you grow in the South? You can grow rice crop in the South. Now rice crop, you know, now you think you think, oh Asia, rice that's a no-brainer, right? Asia equals rice. Oh, well, no, 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 Rice, actually, you know, for the first thousand years of East Asian history, the, the classical era of Confucius and whatnot, you're not seeing a whole lot of rice, actually. Okay, rice will migrate north from south. And some of the most productive strains of rice will come from what we now know as Vietnam, way down south. And then get passed along further and further north. okay. So rice crop is different than the hard grains of the North. You can grow more rice and you can have larger bumper crops. All right, here's an example. In the North, you can have about three harvests every two years. If you're lucky, if you work hard, you plan well, you manage well, you're going to have three harvests in in, in in two years. In the South, if you manage your, your rice estates well, you're going to have three rice crops in one year. That's double the productivity, double and it's all new land in the south, at least as far as the northerners are concerned. They're colonizing new fertile land for rice agriculture. So intensive rice agriculture in the south. Now, rice requires a lot of water. is one reason why, you know, it's not, it doesn't begin to be grown in the north. You need a lot of water to grow, to grow rice and you need a lot of water management. Okay, you have to be able to clear out marshes. You have to create, you have to reclaim hillsides, clear away hillsides, and terrace them and have complex irrigation systems in which your rice seedlings are only getting the exact amount of water at the exact time of their life cycle. Rice is extremely labor intensive, so you need a lot of hands on deck. You need a lot of people. So there's always demand for new labor, new migrants to come south. Because these estates in the south will be huge, great family-run estates, unlike in the north. And these estates These families, these landlords, will invest in their own technology, their own village infrastructure, their own irrigation, and they'll take their own personal responsibility for terracing out the hillsides and managing their labor. Okay? And if you succeed, you're going to have far more agricultural output than you're going to get in the north. Okay? In the north, they're constantly trying to encourage families to disperse and reclaim new lands. From the unforgiving steppe. All right, borderline desert regions or unfertile regions where it's very difficult to farm. All right, like, you know, go out and see what you can do because there's only so much productivity you can squeeze out of this plot of land. In the South, no one's saying that. They're saying there's no limit, the sky is the limit to the rice productivity we can squeeze out of this hillside. We just need more people, more investment, more capital, and more attention to detail. And we're going to get a ton of rice. No, Not surprisingly, that's going to fuel a huge population boom. Not just, you know, the people migrating south, but once they get there, they're going to reproduce in ever greater numbers. Because you have a lot of food in the south. This also creates the rise of distinct northern and southern cultures. All right? And these are stereotypes that still exist today. And beneath every single stereotype is a kernel of truth. No one would believe a stereotype. No one would ever, you know... Um, uh, 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 listen to a stereotype and let the stereotype take root in their mind if it was based on a complete falsehood. There has to be some sort of kernel of truth. That just gets exaggerated. Right. In the north, the people there eat the products of animal husbandry and hard grains. Okay? You eat wh- you eat products made from wheat, millet, sorghum, bread-type things. Okay? The manto's, the baozi, and then you also eat the products of animal husbandry because you are very close to the mixed use pastoral lands, the steppe lands. You see nomads a lot. Lamb, dairy products, yogurt, fermented mare's milk. These are going to be things that are much more common in the north. In the south, the cuisine is going to be obviously rice, but it's also going to be the products of that water that's all around you the products of the rivers and the sea, fish, seaweed. Sea slugs, shark fins. You're also going to have lots more fruit in the south, tropical fruits, bananas, lychees, loquats, coconuts. Forty types, forty-five types of jujubes, twelve types of peaches, twelve types of pears. And the people who grew up in these regions will see the cuisine and the customs of the people who live in the other region as bizarre. There's one contemporary record of a meeting between two men, one from the north, one from the south. And it goes as follows. When a man first traveled to the north from the south, he did not consume mutton, yogurt drinks, or such northern fare. Instead, he regularly ate carp stew, and when thirsty, he drank tea. Several years later, he attended a banquet, where he consumed a great deal of mutton and yogurt. His host was startled and asked him, Of the flavors of China, how does mutton compare with carp stew, and how does tea compare with yogurt? The man replied, lamb is the finest produce of the land, while fish are the best of water creatures. Only tea completely misses the mark and is the true slave of yogurt. Notice how he emphasizes lamb, finest produce of the land, the land in the north, while fish are the best of the water creatures. You're talking about things that come out of the water in the south. And rice, too, in a sense, is the product of enormous amounts of water, even though you're not growing, you're not taking rice out of a river, obviously. What is the disparaging northerner's view of someone who lives in the South? Well, if you're in the North, you have to think about what your assets are. What can you say we have that no one else can equal? Well, in the North, you can recognize that you live in the land that Confucius lived in that Mencius lived in, that Shunzu lived in, that all the great philosophers, all the great classical texts of the Zhou were created in the North. Okay? That's a pretty big asset. So what you do is you look at the South and you say, there's barbaric tongues, indigenous peoples down there who haven't yet completely been integrated or driven away or killed off or whatever the case may be. There's more tattooing of bodies in the South, they have more insects, it's all humid, and it's not the land, most importantly, it's not the land of the proper music or rites or laws. All of that stuff was formulated in in a Northern environment. The South is not the world described by the classics. Okay, that's how a Northerner disparages a Southerner. How does a Southerner respond? I'll say, (laughs) in the north, you guys are actually closer to the true barbarians than we are, because in the north you're you're always bumping up against what we now think of as Mongolia. Okay, the the nomadic, semi-nomadic peoples of Mongolia, Manchuria, Central Asia, and they're saying those are the barbarians, no fixed abode, always going to war oftentimes illiterate, and you intermix with them, as we'll see when we talk in our, in our next episode, the empires of the steppe. You have a lot more intermixing with nomadic peoples in the north as well. That's how you're going to create the political and military powerhouses, actually. Okay, and they'll say, that's true barbarism. You see, the southerners, over time, will do the most to cultivate a sense, increasingly over time, that Hua equals Han. Now, Han, this category, doesn't even exist yet. We will have an episode, Who Are the Han?, in which we talk about that. Uh, but nonetheless, once we finally get the idea of, of, of Han, this ethnic identity, uh, Southerners will do far more than, no- than Northerners to say, you know what, uh, Han actually equals China, Chinese, huaxia, and we are the true civilized people. Okay. Northerners will play their role as well in all of this, and we'll, we'll, we'll figure out all these details as time goes on. Um, but you can see the beginnings of this split between North and South occur with the, with the fall of the Han Dynasty and the Great Southern Migration. You're also going to get differences in dress, differences in language, uh, the forms of speech from the Sino-Tibetan family that diverge and grow up in the south will actually be much more diverse than in the north. Remember we talked about East Asian languages, um, and I said, you know, I made the point that languages are far more diverse all throughout what we think of the East Asian mainland um, than usually we, we expect. Um, that said, they will be even more diverse south of the Yangtze River than they are north of the Yangtze River. All right? You will have slightly more homogeneity among the forms of northern Chinese speech than you will in the South. You know, go online, type in a map, you know, linguistic map of China and you'll find south of the Yangtze River. um, you're, you're, You're going to get large groups of completely mutually unintelligible languages much quicker than you're going to find that traveling around in the North. Now, the Great Southern Migration is going to create this shift where the South is going to be the repository of economic, demographic, and cultural power, and the North will remain the stronghold of military and political power. So they they have different strengths. Okay? In other words, they're very complementary to one another. Each geographic sphere will possess something that the other lacks and desire that which the other has. The northerners want the tax revenue and the educated bureaucratic fodder of the South. Okay. And the Southerners can't really create a strong state with a strong army capable of defeating the North. So, how do you unite these two regions together? Well, remember, cast your mind back to episode one or two, in which we observe that there is no major natural North-South waterway on the East Asian mainland. There's only... West to east. The young's and the yellow. They both go west to east. Okay. What is the solution to this? Remember in the old days, before modern transportation and whatnot, travel travel sucks. It's really hard to get from point A to point B. And land travel is miserable. Okay. in the best of times, you're, you know, you've got a, a makeshift road. Maybe it's a stone road, but most likely it's dirt. And every time it rains, it turns into mud. Okay, roads are precarious. Well, water travel, however, is much safer and much quicker, far more economical. So the solution to unite the north and the south is to somehow solve this problem of not having a north-south river. You need a Nile. If you could just pick up the Nile from Egypt and put it in China, boy, that would solve all their problems. Well, you can't do that. But what you can do is you can build an artificial waterway. Okay, okay. And that's exactly what's going to happen. The Grand Canal will be built from approximately the late 6th century to the early 7th century. You know, the 580s, 590s, and the first decade of the 600s. Largely by the Sui Dynasty, which after 400 years of, you know, a, a pretty much another warring states period in which there's no major central government, you're finally going to get the resumption of a major state that equals the Han, surpasses the Han dynasty in its scope, in its geographic breadth. All right, and it's going to be this state, the Sui, and then the Tang dynasty that succeeds it, that will say, you know what, we need to solve this problem. Now we have a lot of tax revenue and people in the South that we want to have control over. We need to finally, we we, we just need to overcome nature and build our own waterway that the world did not see fit to give us. So they build the Grand Canal. It's, you know, just it's it's a north-south river dug out by human hands. Okay, and it's in several different sections, but essentially, you know, if you want to think of it in modern term, mo- modern day geography, you're going from the Shanghai region all the way up to the Beijing region, with a little spur line that goes over to uh, uh, connect with <clears throat> connect with the Yellow River and the capitals of uh, Luoyang and Xi'an, which are the capitals of the Tang dynasty. Okay, Now, once you have the Grand Canal, you have, you've, you've solved the transportation problem that bedeviled the last 2,000 years of East Asian economic history. What you can now do, okay, picture this. You have tons of rice in the south. You have surplus food in the south. A very fertile southern economy. All right. You can now ship that rice anywhere that you can access by water. And now the north is also accessible by water because you've built the Grand Canal. You can get things all over the place. Weight is no longer the major problem that it used to be. And you can do it largely by water. So you can deliver a basket of rice. Rice is very heavy. All right. You're not getting rice to the north until you can get it there by water. All right, you ever go to the store and pick up a you know, 15 pound bag of rice? It'll break your back. 15 pounds is really, really heavy. You need to put that on a boat. That's the only way you're, 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 you're going to get it 500 miles, 1,000 miles, anywhere, at least economically. All right, now you can ship a basket of rice from the south, from the Yangtze River drainage basin, all the way up to the capital in Luoyang for cheap. Now, what this does this is an economic revolution. Now that you can get a cheap food commodity anywhere in the Huaxia culture sphere, you can free up local areas to produce a cash crop based on whatever their region is specially environmentally suited to produce. If you, if you know if the, the climate conditions and the soil conditions of your land are actually really favorable to producing. I don't know, tobacco, tea, whatever the a, a certain type of fruit. Well, you couldn't do that in the old days, even if you stumbled upon the realization that your land is really good for that. You couldn't do that in the old days because you still have to grow enough food to stay alive and not die. Now you're not going to die. You can go to the market and there'll be enough food sent from a thousand miles away, and that frees you up to produce a cash crop. You can specialize in something. Because you no longer have to grow basic survival uh, uh, commodities. All right, tea is going to be the most famous one. Tea is going to take off now. All right, uh, many regions, especially in the south, will be able to uh, uh, you know re- discover that their lands, their soil conditions, their climate conditions, what have you, are uniquely suited to growing this particular type of tea. And now they can grow that particular type of tea 100% of the time because they can sell it for money and then go to the market and buy rice that was shipped from a thousand miles away. All right, so you're going to get specialized cash crops that are going to start being grown throughout all of mainland East Asia. Okay, what sort of exportable specialty goods are we going to find? Fruits in the south. Any fruits, you got to get. It's heavy. Not only are they heavy, you've got to get it there fast before it rots. You need water for that as well. The Grand Canal. Fruits, sugar, fish, timber, paper, lacquer, Fujian. no, Fujian province, now Fujian province, is going to produce an enormous amount of exports. And again, tea. Tea was one of the most important exports as well. Interesting side note, tea actually originally was used by Buddhist monks. We haven't talked about religion yet, but we will soon uh tea was originally used by buddhist monks as a stimulant as a drug to try and keep them them awake while they were reciting incantations buddhist sutras for hours and hours on end and they were afraid that they'd just fall over get tired and plop face down in their in their scroll and then you know mess up the scroll and get whipped um yeah tea was usually used as a drug to keep people awake um and then eventually it's going to uh, uh, spread much further out. Uh, it'll be a, a really important ingredient in courtly rituals and uh, statecraft. Uh, you get together, tea will be one of these rituals. You have to do, it, do this. You have to have this sort of tea, this sort of cup, drink it in this way, blah blah blah, um, and then eventually it'll spread throughout the entire population. Okay. All this is made possible due to the Grand Canal. The success of all future empires will depend on how well they maintain that Grand Canal Unfortunately for people in the south, the Grand Canal will also facilitate the exploitation and siphoning off of southern resources for northern rulers. Okay, Who, In whose interest is it to build the Grand Canal? It's far more in the interest of people in the north than people in the south. All right, it's going to be the major big states in the north that are going to build the Grand Canal and maintain it, uh, because for them They get that it enables them to exploit the resources of the South. From the Southerners' point of view, it might be nice not to have that Grand Canal sometimes, um, because then you wouldn't have all these Northern armies knocking on your door saying, Hey, we see that your tax revenue is easily exploitable now that we have water transport. Now, in tandem with all this, this, is one of the last points we need to make the relative weakness of Southern states. Okay, just like we talked, you know. In the north, you have weaker landlords and very strong states. And in the south, you're going to have much more powerful landlords, but that's going to have a detrimental effect on the power of the state. All right? Southern states will be much weaker, generally speaking, than northern states. In fact, you're only going to get, after the Grand Canal is built, you're only going to get two, count them, two large states that are based in the south. Or reach their you know their, their center of gravity is in the south at least initially like the song in the Ming Dynasty all right most any other state from this point on the largest and most powerful states um, are going to be located in the north and then they're going to conquer the south and harness the resources of the south to to, to, to support their far-flung empire now states in the south, are much weaker than those in the North, to the point where many of the landlords and the sons of landlords, the wealthy elites in these powerful estates, these rice kingdoms, these, these small fiefdoms of rice, many of the wealthy elites will refuse service in, in, uh, to to the state that they live in. They won't see it as a winning proposition. I have much more power, power and autonomy running my own estate than I would if I joined this relatively weak court. And find that we're going to be thwarted at every single turn in our our foreign relations. Okay. The Chinese communists in the 20th century will come to a very similar realization. Mao Zedong. They'll all begin in the South. The communist movement in the 20th century, the 1920s, will begin in the South, the Yangtze River area. And it will fail repeatedly. Mao Zedong will find that he can't make any headway among the landlords of the South, because the landlords are too powerful. It's impossible to subvert landlord power in the South and get the peasants to rise up against them. Landlords are little dictators in the South. They run their own little countries. It was only in the late 1930s when the communists were driven out of the South and went on their long march and then eventually ended up in Yan'an, far in the North, that they finally realized, hey, landlords are much weaker up here. And they were able to agitate and recruit peasants successfully and grow their numbers and increase their strength. Alright, the South was a losing proposition for egalitarian ideas about communism. The North was a winning proposition. Final little side note in the South. This is where you get the creation of the Chinese garden, what we now think of as the Chinese Garden. All right? The Chinese Garden is going to be is going to be the The result of northerners migrating to the south, educated elites migrating to the south, encountering unfamiliar landscapes, unfamiliar fauna and plants and flowers and animals and insects and whatnot and mountains. And they're going to try to demonstrate the mastery of man over nature by recreating in their own enclosed, fenced-in area a miniature version of the wild lands around them. And show that it's ordered by rational human beings. Confucian minds have ordered this and lent it aesthetic beauty. And the idea was to see if you could exceed nature itself in your own country estate. Um, and so actually, you know, historically, the origins of what we think of now is the Chinese garden, the Japanese garden. Uh, it's going to take root um, during the Great Southern Migration in the South. It's a northerner's response to a new Southern climate and environment. Last point. I know I've already said last point several times. So that's just the way it goes. Sorry. A last point, and this really is the last point. The Great Wall. we got to talk a little bit about the Great Wall. First of all, Great Wall doesn't exist. Right, get that out of your mind. The Great Wall is one of the most ridiculous myths that has ever been perpetuated on humankind. Yes, there are lots of walls <laughs> in East Asia. And yes, there is a fairly... spectacular one in many different segments that you can go see on a tourist bus today. But if you think that there's something called the Great Wall, a continuous, pre-planned infrastructure project, defense bulwark project that goes back to 200 BC, that was built by the first emperor, you got something else coming to you, because that is not true. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the Great Wall and its connection to the Great Southern Migration. Okay? First of all, there's no agreement on what constituted the wall, where it ran, how long it was. If you ever pick up a book, and it tells you that the Great Wall was built in this year, and it's this many thousand miles long, or once was this many thousand long m- miles long, throw that book away. That's not true. And no one knows, by the way. Okay? The, the walls... Right. Wall building has existed, you know, as early back as we as, as as the archaeological record will take us. The Warring States period, we're seeing walls. Okay, uh, during the Qin Dynasty, we're seeing walls. The First Empire, but they were never conceived of as one unitary Great Wall. They were small individual walls designed for defense. Remember Moltze, the philosopher Moltze was an expert in siege warfare, how to scale walls of a city. Okay? There's no, nothing different than walls you might find in Europe in the, in the medieval period. Okay? There were additional longer walls that were described as being somewhere located somewhere along the northern frontiers. But these were disconnected, they were local and they were not seen as a continuous entity. And when archaeologists find the remains of these walls today, They're usually not all that impressed. It looks nothing like the tourist pictures of the walls that you see outside of Beijing today. Okay. Now, what are the purpose of all these walls that were built throughout East Asian history? They were designed to counter or deflect the limited nomadic raids that would occur from time to time From nomads or semi nomadic peoples living in what we now think of as Mongolia. Okay. The walls were built in hopes of deterring nomadic raids on your frontier settlements in the north. All right. So here we see our first connection to the Great Southern Migration. Okay. Walls are, the res- are, 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 are what people who live sedentary lives do to prevent northerners from trying to exploit their sedentary agricultural resources. It's going to be a southern state, the largest southern state, that will do the most wall building in East Asian history. That's going to be the Ming Dynasty. The Ming Dynasty will be the largest state, whose rulers come from the Yangtze River area, the south, and yet they manage to conquer as large a portion of the north as any southern state will ever be able to do. They don't get into the steppe, they don't get into Mongolia, uh, but they will get as far as north as what we think of as Beijing today, and even a little further than that. Okay, and it's the Ming Dynasty, a southern agricultural state. That is going to feel the, mo- the greatest threat from the nomads. Because okay, an iron rule of East Asian history is that Southerners cannot conquer the North. You just can't. For reasons that we'll explore in the, in the next episode. You can't deal a decisive death blow to a nomadic confederation. But you can do that in reverse. Nomads can definitely deal a decisive death blow to southern agricultural states because you can't move your base. You're a sitting duck. Okay. And so the Ming Dynasty is always dealing with the headache of northern raids. And they're worried that you're going to get a repeat of the Mongolian conquest, Genghis Khan. They're very very worried about this. And so it's going to be the Ming Dynasty. All right, three... Uh, 1368 to 1644, that's going to say, you know what, we need to have some sort of a solution to these nomadic peoples. And they would get petitions in from villages and counties and cities that lived much closer to the nomadic threat. And they would ask the mean court in Beijing, what are we going to do about the nomads who keep pestering us? and destroying our villages, and raiding us, and trying to extract treaties and economic concessions out of us. And the Ming court would debate fruitlessly, endlessly, about what they were going to do. Now, there's, there's two options, and neither one is very attractive. One, you can undertake a military campaign to go conquer the nomads once and for all, but that's a losing proposition. You can't really conquer nomads, they'll just run away and retreat, until you've expended all of your resources. And then they might actually, this might stimulate the nomads to band together and form a, lo- a larger confederation and then attack you in ever greater numbers and overthrow your dynasty. Well, <laughs> that's counterproductive. You could simply abandon your frontier outposts, those agricultural villages on the edge of fertile soil, and withdraw further south. But that's a sign of weakness. What do you think the nomads are going to do if they see you retreating? They're going to come after you even more. They have mobility. They're on horseback. You can't get away from the nomads. So while the Ming court debates fruitlessly, how are we going to solve this problem? Local officials say, we need to build walls. Now, what do walls do? What do they accomplish? The walls that were built. No one thought, oh, the nomads are going to see that we built a mile-long wall and they're going to say, this is impenetrable. We can't get over that. No. They knew. That the wall could be subverted if the nomads were determined enough. But the nomads are smart. When they see a wall, they just say, You can't build a wall forever. You know how many resources go into building a wall? There's no such thing as a continuous 3,000 mile wall across northern China. There's lots of individual small segments of various walls. And the nomads know this, they just go around the wall. They just gallop their horses for a few miles until your wall ends. And then they attack the first village they see past the opening at the end of the wall. Now, the wall has still served its purpose from the point of view of the village that built the wall. The nomads didn't attack you, (laughs) right? You did push the nomads three miles down to to, to the east or the west or whatever it was. But the nomads still get someone. They just raid the next village down the road. Okay, So you're not actually stopping the nomads with any of the walls that are built. You're just diverting the attention of the nomadic raiders to the next village down the line. Until eventually you have lots of individual walls. Most of these are quite humble. Not a whole lot of resources were put into them. Outside of Beijing, you will get some more magnificent walls. Those are the ones that are the tourist destinations today, and those are the ones that we think of when we think of the eternal Great Wall that goes for 3,000 miles and represents something about the Chinese character, all right? I don't know what, you know, the Great Wall is this ridiculous metaphorical emblem for all kinds of traits and customs that are imagined to embody the Chinese people. That's all nonsense, okay? And it's not 3,000 years old, and it's not continuous. I've hiked the Great Wall, various segments of it outside of Beijing. Right, it's individual segments, and they were all built during the Ming Dynasty. All right, so the wall is the one you're going to see if you go on a tour bus. It's you know, at at, at best, you're looking at a 500-year-old wall. there's nothing to, that's nothing to, you know, to dismiss. 500-year-old relic or ruin is pretty impressive, but just so you know, it's a fairly recent vintage as far as the great sweep of East Asian history goes. Okay, and the wall was always a failure. It never achieved its goal. The Ming built the most walls. A southern agricultural state built the most walls, and the Ming was eventually swallowed up by a nomadic confederation, the Manchus, in tandem with the Mongols. The walls were no match whatsoever. And the northern states don't build walls. The northern states that incorporate nomads, they don't build walls because they don't need to. They have nomadic peoples within their state. They are semi-nomadic peoples, their own origins. They know walls are wasteful, a pointless use of resources. Because they know how nomadic raids work. They they, They did them themselves, or their ancestors did them. Nomads don't build walls. And in the north, all the major states intermix, integrate nomadic peoples into their ruling states. All right, it's the southern agricultural states that have the most to lose because of that damn Grand Canal. <laughs> they have the most to lose, and they are the most vigorous wall builders. And in the end, if the Great Wall, or any of these little walls, ever achieved anything, it only achieved the goal of having your cousin's village attacked rather than your own village attacked. That's the success of any of the walls that were built. Now... Next time, we are going to move on and talk about these nomadic peoples and the unbelievably outsized role that they have played in East Asian history. And this is going to be a shocking episode for most people because we think of China in terms of 20th century history in which nomads basically don't exist anymore. And then we read that situation back into history and imagine that it's always been the demographic-cultural mix that we see in the 20th century. Absolutely not true a tiny minority of the population of East and Inner Asia dominated the military and political history for 2,000 years. And we will talk about this in detail in the next episode, Empires of the Steppe, and I hope you join me. You better join me, because that is a really important topic, I would say, equal to, if not more, than the Great Southern Migration. See you next time.